is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. For this, the third episode of the podcast, I spoke via the magic of Skype with Jungian analyst and author Frith Luton. Frith holds a Bachelor of Arts Honors and a Diploma of Education from the University of Melbourne, a Master of Analytical Psychology from the University of Western Sydney, a Diploma in Applied Astrology from Astrosynthesis in Australia, a Graduate Diploma in Editing and Publishing from the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, and a Diploma in Analytical Psychology, which is the Diploma of a Jungian Analyst, from the Research and Training Center for Depth Psychology, according to C.G. Jung and Marie-Louise von Franz in Zurich. She has presented a series of lectures to trainee analysts at the Research and Training Center for Depth Psychology and at the International School of Analytical Psychology. She has also lectured at the Psychology Club of Zurich and at the C.G. Jung Societies of Brisbane, Canberra, Melbourne, South Australia, and Sydney. Frith is currently in private practice in Melbourne, Australia, and is also a professional astrologer, available for both consultations and supervision. In addition, she has been a longtime professional book editor, having worked closely with Daryl Sharp, editing titles for inner-city books. She is the author of Bees, Honey, and the Hive, Circumambulating the Center, A Jungian Exploration of the Symbolism in Psychology, published by Inner City Books in 2011. Here's the interview. I was looking at your website, frithluton.com, and on it, you have a lot of interesting information about Jungian analysis. Yes, and a lot of that is thanks to Daryl Sharp and his generous um, offer that I could quote from his C.G. Jung lexicon. And uh, also my husband has taken some wonderful photos and, and created some very interesting artifacts there. Yeah, I did notice that there are a lot of photographs of you uh, in different parts of the world. You spent time in Europe, in Morocco, in northern Norway. You spent three months trekking in Nepal, a month in Thailand, two trips to Burma, and after that, another month in Greece and three months in Turkey. Frith, what were you doing? I love traveling, and uh, there's more to add to that list because I've been back and forward from Zurich and Australia many, many times, and, and recently I fulfilled a lifelong passion and went to Iceland, which is a mythic, wonderful country, and that was a dream come true. I... Uh, my grandfather was um, from Manchester in England and, and my mother spoke fluent French and German and I think I'm quite European in my uh, um, loves and passions and, and I also was a travel editor at Lonely Planet Publications editing travel guide books uh, for, for over eight years. So I just love the broader horizons and... Uh, about Nepal, you mentioned that being there and also your experience of the death of some close loved ones opened up, as Jung calls it, thinking with the heart. What is thinking with the heart? I think it is uh, a combination of, of what Jung would call logos and eros and, and this, this deep relatedness to the, to the humanity in us that is so important and, and so healing. It's not just the, sky god logos and thinking with the heart really led me to the work on the bees uh, so it is a combination of above and below sky and earth that meet in the middle so we can have a good combination of thinking and feeling and and not lose our humanity which is our heart which is also courage and authenticity and really as a Jungian analyst helping that come out in others is really what I was drawn to I think. You wrote respecting the wisdom of dreams is the red thread and that's a significant part of your training as an analyst is to stay true to the demanding life's work of pondering the meaning and amplifying the images and symbols of your own dreams, as well as in the dreams of your analysands who entrust their inner life to you in your dialogues and work together. Mm-hmm. What is the red thread? I think the Swiss taught me that expression. Uh, it is the connection and it, it's like 
the living flowing stone the redness that the, the life force uh, uh and you know a thread joins things and and flows so it's the connection that's alive and you know the the red book is uh, a red thread as well problems original experience direct experiences to his psychology that that, that took years to develop out of that direct experience you mentioned in your book that as a Jungian analyst, you work with the symbolic life and with the archetypal images that come up from the depths of the unconscious to consciousness, for example, through dreams. Mm. Would you say a few words about that? Yes, the, the symbols are, are very important because uh, Jung said that uh, they are the be- best expressions of something that's unknown within us. We have our, our kind of hot spots, the things that we react to, the complexes where we can react in an autonomous way without um, really refining what we're going to say or do. It just comes out like stepping on a landmine. But um, symbols give us a bridge to understanding and working out our own meaning you know, the Delphic uh, maxim of know thyself and nothing in excess is uh, what we're trying to achieve, I think, on this kind of inner um, reflection and quest. On your website, you say that today many psychologically healthy individuals are discovering the depths of their own psyche through engaging with the messages from their own unconscious brought to light by their dreams. That really struck me because I didn't enter analysis because I was mentally ill. It was because I was clashing with the outside world and I wanted to know why, and I didn't know what to do about it. And it seemed that nobody around me had the answers, and I had to go looking for what made sense to me. And that was, as you call it, the profound insights of C.G. Jung. Mm. What, what made you want to become an analyst? I had some very strong dreams uh, that that were archetypal after the death of my stepfather, the one who was a beekeeper for those that have read the book. Um, and I started looking at uh, classical mythology and, and I thought, this, this is wonderful. It really helps me understand the grief and... and uh, and gives me a, a points me in a in a direction. It shows where the psychic energy is 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 going. And I started uh, reading some Jungian work and was particularly draw, drawn to Jung and von Franz, but uh, also Robert Johnson's He, She, and We. And, and I just adored reading that. I, I'd been a great reader of fiction and I was working in the publishing industry in the 1980s and I just thought, oh, this is amazing. And I was also very much interested in the symbolic right from childhood and uh, had this thirst for self-understanding and and questing and it vivified me. It made me feel the joy of life and understanding and so... It took me a long time to, to get to Zurich. I went there in 2000 first for a summer intensive and and, uh, and I, I think that my inner life, my dreams, those symbols built bridges to, towards um, the work. But I also was an astrologer and that wasn't enough for me because I really wanted to go deeper into the individual work and and. Jung says the main interest of his work is to kind of semi-quote him, it is not concerned with the treatment of neurosis but rather with the approach to the numinous, which is the real therapy. So that's the kind of living psyche, uh, the, the kind of links between psyche and matter, between nature and um, our inner depths and meaning. So he said man needs to become his complete self to live whole, or mankind, men and women. God needs man man to mirror his creation and help it evolve, and the whole human 
being as open to the divine um, as co-creator. So there's there's this kind of religious instinct that is in and and spirituality and comparative mythology and religion that that's um, very much necessary. He thinks besides the psychiatry and psychopathology for uh, an analyst in their work and of course their own personal training analysis which is the quintessence of the whole um, training and makes it different from any other kind of therapy. It, it's it's rigorous training. It's not just getting a postgraduate degree. It involves a personal analysis. Hundreds of hours and hundred, hundreds of hours of casework and also writing uh, something that comes out of that um, and that's my B work started as my creative thesis at the end of my training. But uh, I remember when I was being interviewed for there's a very rigorous selection process and I was being interviewed in Zurich, the Jung Institute, and I was asked what's the, the heart of the training and I said the analysis because really we Jung says in Memories, Dreams and Reflections that the analysts can only accompany the analyse on into the work as far as he or she has gone themselves. So if you stay in your persona in a analytic uh, encounter and not do the shadow work and not, not look at your own uh, complexes and what triggers you, then... It's going to come out somewhere. You may fly through your training, but then something will bring you to your knees later on. There's no training. Um, some of the more senior people said in Zurich that that doesn't um, bring you to your knees and make you suffer in some way, but there's joy as well. And, and this is uh, the opposites. You know, in, in my book I say where there's honey, there's gall, quote, quoting one of the famous classical quotes and this this both and it's really important in astrology and it's really important in Jung's approach to understanding ourselves or to our psyche. The both and, could you explain that a little bit? Well, I suppose um, it's this um, sense that there's living paradox and mystery uh, I have people that come to me who haven't read much real Jung and they would like me to to kind of fix them and, and nail down the, the meaning of a dream and, and, and give them some show bag or commodity to leave with. And, and until that person is prepared to work and suffer and, and come alive within themselves to, to a kind of walking the path of their their own symbolism then ah they're probably not ready i'm glad that you mentioned the suffering uh because i think that if you were to tell people at the beginning of analysis that it was going to involve a lot of suffering i don't think they'd do it it would be a lot easier to just take a pill yeah and the suffering comes through trying to understand one's what what one doesn't know about oneself one, one's shadow and you know if someone shines at the light of consciousness or talks about a dream image that that doesn't sit nicely with one's sanitized view of oneself then it can be like an explosion so we have to tread carefully there are there is that kairos that that timing that's respectful to the stage at which that other person that you're sitting with is and usually um, something comes between the analyze on and the, the analyst and the and the work that they do together that that Jung calls a transcendent function the, the third thing that arises from knowing more about how we can live, Jung actually said of himself, I am the clash of opposites and throughout a long life, Claire Dunn says this in her book, um, Wounded Healer of the Soul, throughout a long life he learned to live and reconcile the polarities into a unity of wholeness 
at 84, he said of that long trek, and I'll just read you a little quote that I like, the journey from cloud cuckoo land to reality lasted a long time. In my case, Pilgrim's progress consisted in my having to climb down a thousand ladders until I could reach out my hand to the little clot of earth that I am. So, you know, it's it's not about um, being mothered or, or held or never-ending compassion. It's about being able to stand in the fire oneself and not blame the analyst or the parental figure for not getting it or whatever. If, if something doesn't click in a session, you have to come back and, and say, look, I felt that that didn't quite hit the spot. Can we talk about this more? Can we explore it more? But uh, that requires patience and humility and reflection and a red thread between one session to the next. You don't just uh, be in this process for one hour a week or two hours a week. It's it's quite a commitment and that doesn't really fit with some of the busyness of the modern narcissistic uh, entitled life. Not that I'm judging, but there there is this kind of demanding um kind of animus-ridden behaviour that uh, can get shipwrecked if we're not prepared to look at our more shadowy, unrefined sides, rough edges, we call them in Australia. We have to polish to to get our our gold out of the dark and and actually, and that's why I chose the bees because their honey-making process is... uh, has parallels to what we go through to um, really have this sense of inner unity that Jung calls the self, and it does kind of bridge the conscious and the unconscious, and so there's always something unconscious that we can't appropriate to consciousness, and we have to live with that. We're not uh, all-knowing, all-powerful gods or goddesses. That, That would be inflated and hubris inspiring you mentioned in your book about the bees that too much honey led to the dark side of the sweetness do you you equate that to too much sweetness and light even in a relationship too much positivity people are forcing themselves to be nice to each other Um, this positive thinking attitude that's out there do you believe that that constellates the opposite well in a lot of, uh, I, I think we call it Pollyanna, isn't we? You know, everything's wonderful and we don't live in springtime all the time. We have to go through uh, winter in order to see the new spring and, and in alchemy it's like the new, the new sun or the new sunrise, aurora conversion. If, if we're wanting the sweet things and, and the things that are palatable, that taste good and that are easy and and pleasing and pleasing to our egos and um, giving us strokes and positive feedback all the time, then when we have the first bit of criticism, maybe in a new job or in a new marriage or relationship, will we, there'll be this outrage complex that comes up and says, I'm out of here, I, I can't tolerate this. Don't speak to me like that. I'm, um, you know, I deserve the world and you're not giving it to me. So, you know, that, that can be too much, um, of the good thing. But, but also if, if we are in a honeymoon period or, or just in the honey, then often that loads up one side of the polarity between sweetness and bitterness or war and peace or, sting and honey making and then the scales can tip to the other other side and I think as an astrologer that that um, balancing the opposites and trying to find that transcendent function that that's the Buddhists call the middle middle path or the Taoists call the, the way or Jung calls the self that's this balancing act of recognizing a, a paradox that can include both and, but not all one and not the other. But you do, of course, if you sting and snipe or 
express rage, you're you're losing something of your balance, and that's why the Von Francis um, article on the transform berserker is really central to my book. But it is like recognizing the the really dark things in the world can help us reach a situation where there's a sense that there might be meaning in in this one book that I recommend to people that are not not just starting out reading Jungian works because it might be too much of a shock, but Edward Edinger's uh, archetype of the apocalypse is is quite interesting behind it, and it's also in the Transform Berserker vision behind this deep eros that develops first there has to be a recognition of all the very dark things in a way you mentioned the transformed berserker that he does not express blind destructive undifferentiated anger and rage but rather and this is the transformed berserker mm. but rather a divine fighting spirit or way of protecting and bringing balance to what is warring or in opposition in the collective Yes, this Transform Berserker refers to a vision of, of Nicholas von Flew who became like a, a wise sage in, in Swiss um, life several centuries ago and a saint in a way. He was a soldier and he withdrew and his family lived in a farmhouse. Uh, it's still there and, and he, he sat in a, in a meditative state like some of the Buddhist monks with with very little food and so on. People came for healing. But one, he had a lot of visions and one was him out on the path walking and there are these wonderful subalpine walking paths in Switzerland and he met a pilgrim wearing the wayfarer's hat and, and cloak and, of course, a wayfarer is symbolic of someone on a pilgrimage touching the earth and going on a, it's usually a spiritual journey, like walking the Camino in France, uh, Spain. And there's this encounter and it's relig- religious. There's a Christian hallelujah sound and then there's this bodily recognition that transforms. You, you then see a Wotanic figure who's a god of the storm and, and also the, shamanic union of opposites between heaven and earth, the living and the uh, the dead, then these two men look at each other and the, the eye contact and the, the kind of eros, the link and feeling between the two is very intense and then this transformation, it's like a glinting bearskin. The berserker was actually the bare human overlay or composite symbols so that the the noble uh, warrior would be sitting at home and there'd be a battle and so somehow he'd be there. It's almost like journeying in the shamanic sense, be there amongst it but still be this balanced, dignified human that that was firmly in the society but, but was in touch with the raging bear side and so this intense meeting on the path, it was as if honey was flowing when the transformation happened and, and it was this deep eros or love of a, of a human kind. It wasn't, wasn't, it was something big that could then have a transformative effect on not just the local surroundings, but heal much bigger problems and wars and, and so on. And that, that's very alchemical because we do our work in a very private analytical space. Jung, Jung saw the parallels between the psychological um, development and understanding within an individual doing this depth psychological work. And uh, in alchemy, the transformation happens in this closed vessel, just like the honey making happens in a closed beehive. The bees flapping their wings and and keeping the the uncured honey that's um, being transformed 
into the golden flowing substance. The Arabic alchemists call it the stone, actually, honey. And so when it reaches a certain stage, when when we haven't got warring opposites tearing us apart, because we all know what happens when we lose our centre or our composure, when we've got something that's really like a neurotic thorn in the side that, that won't let us rest and tears us apart, um, then we can't really be so effective in in creating a harmonious effect in our environment. And so at some stage uh, when we've done our inner work and our creative uh, paying attention to our symbolic life, Jung and Von Prantz both talk about this rubedo end stage and it's represented by a phoenix, the symbol of rebirth in some of the alchemical drawings. The vessel can be opened and the contents won't just spew out and scatter in an autonomous complex rage or something like that. It'll be more um, healing in its effect and more unifying. So I think we could do with a big dose of that in the world right now. And just one other thing, that the beehive with the queen at the centre, that they have this natural way of, um, task differentiation at different ages and also with the bees and also with different external conditions like different blossoms flowering or uh, different amounts of sunshine and temperature. And so it, it's, it's like the self-regulation of the psyche and this, this luminous queen that just lays and lays is, is there and it's called a you social system. So, you know, for the benefit of, of the whole um, organism in a way, it's indestructible um, in its life force. Zoe, I talk about this in the book, The Indestructibility of Life, and some of the latest researchers in your state of Illinois are, have found some wonderful things from decoding the honeybee genome and, and uh, other research that are really making the links between the alchemical individuation process even um, more exciting than what I describe in the book. One of the other mentions of the alchemical work in your book is how the psychological individuation process involves hard work and daily routine as in the stage of alchemy called women washing with its images of women doing the laundry. And this really caught my attention because I often find myself complaining about how I have to do the same tasks every day. I have to wash the dishes, do the laundry, tidy up the house, take out the garbage. I mean, even bathe, right? We have Mm -hmm. to do those things every day. And Sometimes I get so frustrated because I just want to work. I just want to read. I just want to sit and do my creative work. And all of these everyday, seemingly menial tasks kind of get in the way. And when I read this section of your book, it all made sense to me. Why all this constant cleaning? (laughs) Tell us what you said about it in the book. Oh, okay. I was going to tell you something else about it. (laughs) Oh, please do. Go ahead. It's very interesting. I don't know whether you got on board with this New York Times bestseller that that just came out with Marie Kondo about the joy of tidying and if if items in your house don't bring you joy, then you throw them out. I recommend it. A lot of Americans rushed out and bought it and it just was a number one New York Times bestseller. With these kind of mundane daily round routines, if they're not excessive in our lives, these routine chores can be done with the kind of meditative recollection and, you know, re-centering, I suppose, and they can free us to become aware of thoughts and feelings that we're mostly too busy to kind of give time and space to. And it just helps a different kind of consciousness, making unconscious thoughts and feelings conscious, uh, you know, we can think about uh, what sparked us or, or made us fall into, into a complex in a certain situation. It's it's processing time, I think. Yes. And we can also become more centred in attending to and 
caring for our life environment, keeping it kind of clean and beautiful, etc. And, you know, if you come home to an absolutely messy house and all the dishes not uh, clean in the kitchen and so on, it's it's more difficult to, to get to those creative, uh, passionate things. But I say that uh, I quoted Von Franz um, in her lectures on alchemy in the book and, and there's some be- I've put in a footnote that recommending the book by Joseph Henderson and Diane Sherwood, The Transformation of the Psyche, the, the Splendor Solus, um, Symbolic Alchemy of the Splendor Solus. A lot of people love that because it's got the alchemical pictures in colour and there is one of the women washing stage with the, uh, the sheets out everywhere. I might be a bit prejudiced because I used to line up all my teddy bears and toys and with my sister and put on a big waterproof apron and have the old metal bathtub and, and we do washing. And now if I travel and come home here, I still hand wash and put things out on the clothesline in the air. Most people have electric dryers in the north, but we don't have a really cold winter here so we can do that and it's a meditation for me it's a it's a re regrounding and landing process but von france said, lectured on alchemy and daryl sharp and inner city books have got that wonderful green book on alchemy by von france i recommend that to everyone she said in alchemical literature it's generally said the great effort and trouble continues from the Negredo, that's the black stage, mm-hmm. to the Albedo, that's the, the white stage when consciousness comes in. That is said to be the hard part and afterwards everything becomes easier. The Negredo, the blackness, the terrible depression and state of dissolution, like falling apart, um, has to be compensated by the hard work of the alchemist or that's us in analysis, mm-hmm. um, uh, and that hard work consists, amongst other things, in constant washing. Therefore, even the work of washerwomen's often mentioned in the text. Um, you know, it's it's doing that the Zen Buddhist thing: chop that wood, carry water. You know, sometimes you do get really impatient. Oh, I wish I didn't have to have to cook the meal and and uh, sweep the leaves and do this and do that in Switzerland. They're much more emphatic about, you know, ringing the Gemeinde house or even the police if, if things are a bit out of place. But uh, part of this archetype of order, I suppose, and purification rituals, the washing, um, and we often have dreams where we're in the shower or in the alchemical bath and so we're prepared to loosen the, the dirt and go through a process that involves loosening up and, and cleansing, I suppose, and that, that helps transformation process and an inner inner kind of uh, daily commitment is necessary. And I've got this beautiful quote from Rilke that someone gave me after I'd done the book and it's his letter to a Polish translator in, from 1925. He says, we are the bees of the invisible world, so we humans. And I think this is really central, Laura, to what my main reasons for doing this work. We're the bees of the invisible world. We perpetually gather the honey of the visible world in order to store it in the great golden hive of the invisible one. So we're kind of renewing something that's really to do with that that kind of spiritual enduring sense of meaning that that Jung calls itself that can can renew us day after day in in the most simple grounded ways and von Franz says it's really really important for an analyst not to go stale she's got this wonderful uh, kind of tip I suppose about you have to be working on your own creative project and for her that was writing and lectures in order to, to take care of that hungry creative side so that it's not, it doesn't become, you know, a matter of, um, of power issues in groups and things like that. And, and Jung's wonderful quote about where love reigns, there's no will to power, and where the will to power is paramount, love is lacking, the one is but the shadow of the other. 
that's from Collective Work 7, paragraph 78, that is the key to the whole thing as far as I'm concerned and that was central in my work on the bees. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I noticed that quote in your book on page 121 and that seems to be a very popular Jungian quote. Yeah, I see that a lot. And I usually only see part of it, not the yes, whole thing. Yes, that's right. And, and often the hard bits are left out, the ones that involve difficulty. Mm-hmm. That the one is but the shadow of the other. The man who adopts the standpoint of Eros finds his compensatory opposite in the will to power. And that of the man who puts the accent on power is Eros. Mysterium Conjunctionis, which is um, Jung's final work on alchemy, is my favourite book of the collected works. And really, this book, Bees, Honey and the Hive, is is based on my love of of that. Plus, I was a beekeeper. I had 150 beehives with with my stepfather. And so I really love the bees from that point of view. But Jung in that, that Mysterium Conjunctionis talks about the honey and has this beautiful quote from Paracelsus, um, that in the honey, the sweetness of earth, we can easily recognize the basm of life that permeates all living, budding and growing things. So it's this kind of flow. Um, it expresses psychologically the joy of life and the life urge, and that's kind of the red again, which overcome and eliminate everything dark and inhibiting. Where spring-like joy and expectation reign, spirit can embrace nature and nature's spirit. So that's paragraph 698. So that's in the B symbolism, there is this link with the sky gods and the sun and also the, the great mother, um, in the kind of ancient Greek and Cretan mother goddess, um, you know, the, the priestesses are called bees, Melissa. And, uh, there's this place in the middle where, where the, the combination of lunar and solar, masculine, feminine, and, and the eros and logos or spirit and matter meet. And that's where, according to mythology, the bee comes into the picture. And so it's a wonderful symbolism associated with the bee and the honey and the hive. And it's got everything to do with uh, why our life has got joy and springtime energy and, and, and love and passion. But there is a sting and we do do war Another symbol tied to the bees that we haven't touched on is the actual beehive itself being, yes, yes, an emblem of industry. Now, that's not the same industry as our current day industry. What are the differences and where did we, with the way we do industry, where did we kind of go wrong? I think we lost our soul, but um, the the industry that's coming from centuries ago, it's, it's the it's the actual focus on, well, in the modern day we'd say focus on task. Um, so industry is focused in the, in the beehive and it's actually every day when the sun rises, the, the bees, if it's, if it's over 17 degrees centigrade, sorry, we're, we're, we don't do Fahrenheit here anymore. We used to. Um, then, then they can fly and they will. And they won't say, I'm going to do nothing today. I'm going to be a couch potato. I'm going to watch television. I'm going to um, be online all day. They go out and and find what they can bring back of nourishment to actually keep that whole whole system going. And, and the queen is really a, a queen that, that's the centre of it. But... Um, it's not mindless um, losing your losing a sense of what it's all for. Uh, the, the bees have got a dance language. They communicate where the hive is by waggling or, or circling or even having, they've just found out, having stop signals when, when that source is no longer viable. And, and Jung and von Franz both write about this as well as Carl von Frisch and some of the more modern scientists, that 
there's actually some kind of language and and unity in multiplicity going on and it's not kind of artificial teamwork and and just staying at the office till you've done a 12-hour day and then you have to log on if you're Australian to the to the New York time and stay up all night. I know lots of corporate people that are virtually dying at work in a way and losing their joie de vie, losing their honey, losing their, their, their desiccation, the, the water of life has gone like in some of the fairy tales and that's a very serious loss of um, of soul, I suppose you'd call it. You mentioned the social or collective responsibility that the bees exhibit. I've been talking about that with some people about do we live for ourselves and our families or do we live for the community? And what I tend to see is people are pretty much just focused on themselves, maybe themselves, their spouse, their kids, maybe their close friends and family, and they really couldn't care less about anybody else. I was thinking about that a lot when I was reading about the bees and their their collective responsibility to each other, to the hive. Was I reading that right? Yeah, it's very uh very uh complex system and and there's some wonderful new research but they're making it akin to the human brain the way it works. Um but you're also right about this um narcissistic ruthlessness that some people display and you'll have a man pushing a baby in a in a baby chair in, or push a we call them in the restaurant and nearly knock a woman off her chair and not say look I'm really sorry he'll turn to the child that's his and say you're right mate and the the poor woman might have had her neck put out by the by the impact and and uh, there's this just you know it's all about the negative narcissism and entitlement and community can just go. And I, I'm now living in a, in a community that's changing very, very fast. And, and, uh, you know, Melbourne's a city of over 4 million people and we've had old people die and their properties have been sold and these old beautiful houses have been knocked down. And then there's just wall to wall, like mausoleums being built right up to the fence lines and no no earth so no trees and the water doesn't seep down you know and it really changes everything but I still find that when I go for a walk each day I meet some of the old people and we just learn all this wonderful wisdom of the earth just sometimes it'll take me what should be a five-minute walk to the post office might take me an hour with meeting people and, and I factor that into my daily life because I think without the human connections, uh, you know, you can be very technologically savvy and all the rest of it, but without the human con- connections you're not being fully nourished and I just saw on television this week a special program for young people like adolescents or maybe yeah, 19-year-olds who've been addicted to their technology and their online 10 or 12 plus hours a day and they're having to go to a boot camp where they have to hand in their phones and, and do other things that involve real relationships and, and activities. So that's another imbalance. So it's it's this kind of balance and um, place in the centre that we we probably aim for with our individuation process. Prior to this, I asked you about the state of the bees today and yes. what that says about us as a society, mm-hmm. and you had recommended that I uh, look at what you had said about the weeds in your book and mm-hmm. where does wilderness and, and wildness of nature and our own human nature fit into that? Yes. Would you talk a little bit about that? Yes, it, it kind of links in with the transform berserker thing. But I loved it in Switzerland because in summer, oh no, in springtime, they don't cut down their grass with their, you know, American beauty type of uh, red pink gloves on. They they let all the weeds or the wild things and the blueberries, bluebells, sorry, and primroses come up and. The bees just love that and it helps strengthen the bees and there's diversity. It's not 
monoculture, its wildness, and I think that gives gives the bees nutrients and and you know if we just globalize and make everything monocultural and bland um, for for big dollars or big farmer or whatever, um, then we lose some of that richness from the di- diversity and the the wildness and some of the researchers with colony collapse disorder which became visible in 2006 it became a headline in 2006 when the honeybee genome was um, also published as well and I had already started my work on the bees and was nearly finished at uh, this particular manuscript and then that happened and that I think I said in I might have deleted it, but I think it's in there that it really pulled me up because I had the view of the bees as this miraculous, wonderful, self-regulatory, um, and that that they were indestructible in a way, and and what what a marvelous um, what a marvelous thing this honey was, and and their life, and then this this other mystery came in, and this other mystery is probably to do with imbalances of overwork. Um, have you seen that that wonderful, um, it was a Swiss man from Winterthur um, who made it, uh, More Than Honey, the film. Did you see that? No, I haven't. It's highly recommended. It came out probably in about 2010. I'm not certain about the date. But um, the almond orchards in California are cited as, you know, Bees are often put onto orchards, hives of bees to help pollinate. And some beekeepers, the modern ones, are wearing T-shirts with, you know, such and such pollination services. Now, the whole thing about keeping beehives in the past was very much a hobbyist. Pay attention to the bees in a sacred, mindful way. They had this draping of the beehive with black crepe, the fabric, and the beekeeper died and this ritual of the telling of the bees that the survivors of the beekeeper's family would go to the bees and say, little bees, your master has died. Will you be happy to work for us and, you know, have a relationship with us now that your your master, your, well, I say that you can't really own bees because they've got this innate wildness, but the big commercial apiarists, particularly in the States, really have thousands of hives and this film shows it very well and they go to the orchards and we need the almonds and we love eating almonds. Um, it all happens there but that's monocultural. There's no weeds because pesticides take care of that. We don't want the weeds in the almond orchards, do we, if it's a commercial commercial unit. We'll go through and we'll spray the pesticides. doesn't matter whether there's a, a, a couple of thousand bee boxes there. And even when colony collapse first happened, Australia doesn't have it because we've really got strict quarantine laws. Some people might remember the awful things when you're flying into Australia. They used to spray the cabin of the aircraft with insecticide. That doesn't happen now, but we have strict quarantine laws about bringing food in and when I graduated from Switzerland as an analyst they gave me lots of presents of honey and I had to quietly give those away to to friends even though I would have loved to have brought them. We don't have colony collapse disorder here, we don't have varroa constrictor mite which is one of the gremlins in lowering the bees immune systems but they shipped a lot of our healthy bees to California and kept them in a holding warehouse um, in the heat without water and sunlight unnaturally. Then, you know, it takes the, the journey from Melbourne to L.A. is a 16-hour flight. It's horrid. Then they have to unload them and then they put them out on the orchards and expected them to produce miracles and a lot died and some of the commercial recipients are saying, oh, well, you the deal wasn't done, you know, we'll have commercial redress and sue you or something like that. Bees are creatures that need to be oriented and, and I say in the book, even if if you have a beehive in your home garden and you move it to, say, several yards or metres 
across the other side of the garden, you will find at that original site that there's a pile of dead bees because they fly back to to the exact precise place. They've got this amazing orientation uh, instinct. And if they're being packed up on trucks, put there as pollinators in these big orchards for two or three weeks and they want the um, commercial almond producers want the job done quickly, uh, then there'll be all these different bees and then they'll be loaded back up on these trucks and carried right across America. They won't get enough rest. They won't get enough multivitamins, if you like. And they, like humans, get immune deficiencies and and suffer. There's a whole lot of, you know, we haven't been able with our conscious science to say this is the cause of that. But it is one of those things, I think, of burnout and a lack of inner reflection. And and the people in Illinois say that the hobbyists in your part of the world who have a few hives, those hives are fine because they're cared for and, and nourished with different variety like the weeds and it's not just, you know, this monoculture that's sprayed. Pesticides are another another thing. There's been a lot of illegal action and and some good things just recently in the states that people can look up i can't rattle off the exact details at the moment but there's the einstein einstein quote about if the bees die then human life has got four years to go that's because they pollinate the fruits and flowers and a lot of our food chain but they're also like frogs, the canary in the mine. If bees are dying, then there's really something wrong with the balance of our ecosystem and we need to pay attention. A lot more people know about bees and their mystery and, and, and have, you know, New York's got urban hives on the rooftops. Um, so is Melbourne and there's all these boutique honey tastings and things like that. That's all right, but there's still these big commercial um, units that have to happen uh, and probably a more mindful, conscious, uh, sacred approach is out of the question, but but hopefully that, that berserker might be transformed a bit. There's, there's some wonderful brand-new research uh, that, that a colleague sent me just recently saying that um, like in China, because the bees have died, they've been using little paintbrushes and pollinating the fruit trees by hand. How how bad is that when you know natural insects and have been have been doing it for millennium? Um, but apparently, there's a difference between hand human pollinated um, fruits and bee and insect pollinated fruits that. Vitamin A and iron and folate are just really down in the artificially pollinated things. So, you know, the mystery of nature, the web of life is what Jung would call numinous. We can't get to the bottom of it and, and we just have to respect, um, Carl von Frisch, the person who was famous for and won the Nobel Prize in 1973 for his work on the dance language and orientation of bees, says the life of the bee is like a magic well. The more you draw from it, the more there is to draw. And then there's this amazing book that's online by Morris Metley, The Life of the Bee, written at the very beginning of the 20th century, 1901. He says the first time we open a hive, there comes over us an emotion um, like that we might feel at profaning some unknown object, charged perhaps with dreadful surprise. So there's this sense that you have to actually respect the the mystery of this marvellous little honey maker, just like we have to respect the mystery of our own own depths. And Shakespeare's another another quote, I love some of these quotes about bees and there's a lot of them, he wrote that the person is not worthy of the honeycomb if they shun the hives because the bees have stings and every beekeeper has to deal with the stinging part but a lot of bees, they don't sting certain people. 
I mean, if you wear strong perfumes or look like a bear or something like that, it can happen. And I have a dear colleague who who's a um, training analyst in Zurich who got stung all over the face and beard by bees and got had to go to hospital. But now the bees treat him as one of theirs. And same thing seems to happen with other other elements of the natural world. Nature is full of surprises and mysteries that we need to respect. And Carl Jung really did respect that. He said that he he was part of na- a natural being and and people loved that about him that you know and he he had the place at Bollingen and cooked over an open fire and you know, he just said, as I said before, the main interest of my work is not concerned with the treatment of neurosis or the problems of the, you know, the neurotic daily life, but rather with the approach to the numinous, which is a real therapy. And it actually is, von Franz says this in her book, The Cat, which is beautiful, that it's the archetypal, that kind of um, numinous core that's where the healing actually comes from. If you have a dream, like the dream that launched me on my path to Zurich, I suppose, although I didn't know it till years later, um, it takes you to something deeper um, with a meaning beyond the personal, which connects you in with, with fellow um, human beings, and that kind of takes us out of our selfish, unrelated pursuits, I think. So something that we can take from this, I think, is that each day if we go out into our lives like the bees go out to the different foraging areas like the flowers, that that we bring back and they bring back aphid droppings and and nectar and so on and and then they put it in the little vats, the hexagons in the hives and they then start their, their alchemical transforming process. So we have to bring back what shit I suppose and and grist for the mill that we get in our daily life and the and the beautiful things and the delicious honeys and sit with it and have the right measure of heat. The bees right measure of heat is the same as our human body temperature, which is amazing. And keep it cool enough but they flap their wings. We we take time out and try and balance things and eat our meals and have our sleep and attend our own health and that that can be transformed into something that, that's of enduring value like the golden honey that, that doesn't perish, it lasts for centuries, honey. But just to finish, Laura, the, the Rilke quote I think is most important for bringing it back to an everyday thing where the bees of the invisible world we perpetually gather the honey of the visible world in order to store it in the great golden hive of the invisible one. He was a writer and, you know, a lot of writers say that you have to show up at your desk every day and then it will flow. But if you don't show up at your desk and, and sit there and agonise, even if you only write a few words, then, you know, I think Daryl says, you know, do what's in front of you, stare at the wall until it happens. There was a thing on Inner City Books Facebook page about that recently. So Daryl's been bringing the honey to us in the with the Inner City Books and there's there's no publishing house like that still. And um, so I thank you and I, and I thank Daryl and Inner City Books. Well, thank you, Frith. Thank you for this wonderful book, for opening my eyes to something that was there all along and I just had never noticed. I encourage everybody to get a copy because there's so much more in there that we just didn't have time to cover today. So much of alchemy and Jung and tying all of this symbolism together. And I'll never look at nature or bees or honey the same after this. So for that, I thank you for it. Thanks, Laura. And, and I must say that when I've lectured on this topic and check my website, frithluton.com, because I talk about um, a bit, there's a bit more information under the lectures and publications about the bees and I'm adding some more material about the bees and Laura will be too. Thank you, Frith. Thank you, Laura. I'd like to say another big thank you to Frith for her time today. 
please visit her website, frithluton.com. That's F-R-I-T-H-L-U-T-O-N, where you'll find an extensive section on her lectures and publications, including a beautiful page about her lectures on bees, honey, and the hive. And please visit the website speakingofyoung.com for more information about this podcast, as well as links to the books that were mentioned today. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and on Stitcher. So with eternal gratitude to Liz Jefferson, Daryl Sharp, Charlie Arthur, and Diane Braden, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Yoon.